0: All right, Matt. So, what do you call a med student who graduated online? I don't know, doctor? A Google doc or a web MD, your choice. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, before we get into it, I, I I don't know if you. I was sitting here eating these things before you uh, got mm. on the the peanut butter filled pretzels. Yeah, and I realize it's probably not the best thing to eat before we start recording because it's like all in my mouth and teeth. And, it, and man, it they they dry my mouth out. Yes, so bad. Yep. So it's like eating alum or something. Yeah, it's just like no. Yeah. So I may be sitting here going, "I water," but. Yeah. I, I love, love them, them, dude. Yeah. Oh, it's like a addiction, and the name Uts or whatever it reminds me of the Utsi, the Iceman. So I mean, even more of a reason to eat. It. I don't.
1: I don't even know. Is that a regional thing?
0: The Uts pretzels. No, the Otsy the Iceman. That's that uh, body that they found up in the Alps or something that was preserved Stone Age guy, um, and concluded that after research he'd been there for thousands of years or whatever and he had been attacked he was in a battle and got shot in the back by arrows and like they can track what he was eating and his movement up and down the mountain due to what was in his stomach and then he died on the top of this mountain and got frozen so everything was safe okay and- i
1: re- I remember this story. I did not remember that being the name.
0: Yep. So. <laughs> Let's see the Iceman, U-T-Z-I. So, I don't know why I remember that so much, but there you go.
1: Because <laughs> that's what, you know,
0: A wealth having a mind like a steel trap. That wealth of useless knowledge right there. Uh, but speaking of a wealth of knowledge, go over to podbelly.com and you can find a list of shows that, I mean, they're all a wealth of knowledge or a wealth of humor or just information, and we're proud to be associated with all of them. So go over there and check them out at popbelly.com We also want to thank tonight's sponsors, HelloFresh and Raycon, and we'll talk more about them throughout the episode. While you're on the internet doing your thing, looking up I, who knows stuff I probably can't <laughs> mention on this ep- this episode here. Um, Go over to Patreon.com slash Graveyard Tales. You can sign up to become a patron. We've got three different levels. Um, Our $10 a month, they get video versions of the episode. They get ad-free audio versions of the episode. And sometimes the video versions have stuff in there that I would edit out normally. So you may get a little extra bonus behind-the-scenes content. Um, which may happen for this episode. Who knows? Yeah. We, we had an interesting start <laughs> to it. <so. laughs> but.
1: All right, Adam, let's take a minute and talk about HelloFresh, one of tonight's sponsors. Um, you've heard us talk about HelloFresh a lot, but if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, HelloFresh is a meal delivery service where you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. You get to skip out on those trips to the grocery store, which which I hate. I know mm-hmm. Adam does too. And the one thing I, I hate even more than that is that question of what do you want for dinner tonight?
0: Right, right.
1: Well, with HelloFresh, you you get you get a two for one. You you don't have to go to the grocery store, and you don't have to decide what's for dinner. All you know is that whatever is for dinner is going to be delicious, and it's going to be easy to make. Um, And right now, you can take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh from chef-crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu. HelloFresh brings flavor right to your door.
0: And did you know that HelloFresh offers more than just delicious dinners? It's now easier than ever to skip those extra grocery store trips, you know, the ones where you're always needing to buy like these snacks, or you're like, Mm. well, I got the dinner, but dang it, I don't have lunch tomorrow, or we don't have dessert. You can just order that all from HelloFresh now. You don't have to, you know, worry about getting your HelloFresh, but oh, I also got to get dessert. No, you don't, because they have snacks, sides, and so much more. You just shop their HelloFresh market and you can take your pick from a curated selection over a hundred items. And Matt, I'm gonna tell you, you know I love Tex Mex food. It's my favorite yep. genre. I've talked about that before. They have a crispy Tex Mex pork tenderloin with a lime crema. Man, that is so good. It wasn't until HelloFresh that I learned I loved lime crema. I like I thought really? that was yeah. I thought that was something one, too fancy for me and two, everywhere I go, they just give you sour cream, you know? Yeah. But HelloFresh, you make things that you never knew you'd like and you end up loving them and you learn how to do this stuff. It's amazing. Michael's learning how to do it. He knows how to make the lime crema. So we can make that now whenever thanks to HelloFresh. And if you want to get on the HelloFresh train like Matt and I and our families and if you want to love the dinners, that you're getting, not just go. eh, man, we're having this again. If you want to go, oh yes, HelloFresh. We're getting a new meal. Then all you have to do is go to hellofresh.com/graveyard50. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D five zero, and use our code graveyard50 for fifty percent off plus free shipping.
1: Yeah, just go to hellofresh.com/graveyard50 and put in our code. Graveyard 50 G R A V E Y A R D 50 and you get 50% off plus free shipping. Hello Fresh, America's number one milk kit.
0: Matt, that's all I've got for the beginning of this episode here. So why don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight, brother?
1: All right. So tonight, Adam and I are going to dig into um. Kind of a mysterious uh, phenomenon that um, you you'll be aware of it. You you may not have ever heard it. The the term for it is much more modern than the stories are. Um, but but I'm, I'm I want to read this excerpt from uh, from from a poem uh, that that is a direct. It was directly inspired by this situation. Okay. All right. Who is the third who all, who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together, but when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? That is from the poem The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot and T.S. Eliot said that this this stanza of this poem was directly inspired by the the novel South mm-hmm. which was written by Ernest Shackleton. Right. And and if you don't know who Ernest Shackleton is, he was uh he was uh, an explorer who made an attempt to have the first team to explore Antarctica. And they had a very unusual experience that potentially saved not only his life, but the 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 27 crew members' lives that were on this uh, venture with him. Right. We're going to talk about third man syndrome. Now, in some cases, you'll see it uh, called third man factor, um, but but third man syndrome is is what Adam and I have known it as. So you're going to hear us refer to it as that. But if you see, if you look up and you see third man factor, it's the same thing. It's right. just they've just two different two
0: different ways to say the same thing. And I don't know why they always are changing things, but yeah, I mean, like you said, I've always known it as third man syndrome. And then when we were doing this research. Every time I typed it in, it came up third man factor. And I'm like, what is this yeah. factor thing? It's the same thing.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: So as we always say, go check our sources down in the bottom of the show notes. You can found where you can found where we find. Yep. Man, I have <laughs> screwed this one up at least two times in a row. And I say it every <laughs> week. You can find where we found the information and you can. You know, continue the research because there are some things we'll leave out. There are some accounts that we may not touch on because they're either too brief or too long for this format, or there's not enough information saying, yep, that's what it is. But, I mean, there's more out there. There's a lot of information on this topic. So go check our sources down at the bottom of the show notes. Now, like Matt was saying, this is third man syndrome. So what is third man syndrome? Well, it is a phenomenon that refers to the reported sensation of perception of an additional presence. So often in extreme or life-threatening situations, this will occur. So it is the feeling that someone is with an individual providing support, guidance, or championship, even though there is no tangible evidence of another person being present. You mean companionship? Yeah, whatever. Whatever I said.
1: I was like, championship. And I was like, well, that's an unusual way to use that word. Oh, he he meant to say companionship. And I looked at it, and I was like, I would have probably said championship too.
0: Yeah, misread my my own notes. It It happens. It's going to be a fantastic day. (laughs) Y'all just get We're off to a fantastic start. Yeah. Well, Matt and I are doing this on a different day of the week than we normally do. And I think that's what it is. That's it's it. got to be what's they everything,
1: everything is, the universe is not aligned right now. Yeah, So you're liable to get a bunch
0: of this yep. on the whole show. The, the graveyards are going, wait, no, 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 no. You're in here on the wrong day. I'm not prepared for this. It's bad juju <laughs> yeah. in here. Anyway, we'll continue here. So the phenomena has been documented in various accounts of individuals who have found themselves in an extraordinary, in extraordinary circumstances, such as survival situations, mountaineering expeditions, exploration missions, or combat scenarios. So those who experience the third man syndrome often describe the presence as a calming and reassuring influence during times of distress or danger.
1: Yeah. So this isn't that feeling you get when you go down into your basement and you think you're not alone. That's not what this is. This is when when people are are in you know grave peril something comes along and essentially says you can do this i'm right. i'm here to help you you you're going to get through this right okay and it's it's just i mean when you start looking into this you see all these reports of people that have experienced this um and like adam said you know mountain climbers, <laughs> explorers, and the combat scenarios where, where people's, you know, life was in danger. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, the, this seems to come through.
0: Yep. And I've got some thoughts on why that is that I'll, I'll share toward the end when we get to the theories. But um, it says the syndrome was first clinically documented in the 1940s. That's when it was first documented. It's been happening for Probably as long as there have been humans, this right. this has probably been happening, but we just don't have it documented like that. Um, psychologists have postulated various triggers and explanations ranging from sensory deprivation, extreme fatigue and boredom to an evolutionary adaptations. So. Again, we'll, we'll touch on that. I, I will, I'll save my thoughts till the end on that, but <laughs> yeah. Now, it also says that if one person can summon up a benevolent presence while others are incapable of such a thing, then the psychological comfort may give a boost in the survival stakes. It's considered to be a coping mechanism or an example of um, bicameralism, which, I mean, that's a, a brief scientific, Try at an explanation for it, but we need to get into them, into the stories here of uh, third man syndrome episodes and, and see what you guys think. Um, now, the first person like Matt, like Matt mentioned that we're going to talk about is Ernest Shackleton. And Matt kind of briefly touched on it, but he was an Antarctic explorer who attempted to reach the South Pole. Shackleton entered the Mercantile Marine Service in 1890 and became a sub-lieutenant in the Royal Naval Reserve in 1901. He joined Captain Robert Falcon Scott's British National uh, Antarctic Discovery Expedition, which was 1901 to 1904, as a third lieutenant. Now, in January 1908, he returned to Antarctica as leader of the British Antarctic Nimrod expedition, man, that that word Nimrod. If it gets I, thrown into anything, it screws me up.
1: I've never, I've never done any kind of um, looking into Nimrod, but I, I I see it too in other
0: aspects, and I'm like, well, I I don't know. Weird. I don't know here what they're referring to, but the original Nimrod was in the Bible, and apparently it was a person during the biblical times that was written about that was not very bright, Mm. did a lot of dumb things. So then it got picked up as just a colloquialism for you dumb if somebody said you're a Nimrod, and then again made even more famous by Green Day in the 90s when they had the Nimrod thing. But Yeah. You know, this ship that um, that he was on during this expedition was called the Nimrod. So why they chose that, I'm not sure. I don't know what the. The significance of it in that situation is, but I wouldn't want to be on a ship called Nimrod. Knowing the history of it.
1: Me either. And I was thinking maybe the sails were shaped like big, like white cone hats, like Dunn's (laughs)
0: hats. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so. Maybe like, so. Look at these
1: Nimrods. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, the Nimrods are coming. I see them. You can see them 100 Standing miles sal- away. just saluting like Benny
1: Hill, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and somehow they've got a band on the ship that plays that as they're sailing past the coast.
1: <laughs> Yakety sacks playing as they go by.
0: Now, this expedition, prevented by ice from reaching the intended base site in Edward VII Peninsula, uh, wintered on Ross Island and McMurdo Sound. Now, a sledging party, led by Shackleton, reached within 97 nautical miles, 112 statute miles, or 180 kilometers, of the South Pole. And another, under T.W. Edgeworth, David, reached the area of the South Magnetic Pole. Well, Victoria Land Plateau was claimed by the British Crown and the expedition was responsible for the first ascent of Mount Everest, the sledging party returned to base camp in late February of 1909. But they discovered that the Nimrod had set sail two days earlier. So they, they were full of Nimrods. If they got people out there <laughs> on a sledging party like, and they're like, oh, we're just going to set sail. So we're just going to take two days, two days. Yeah.
1: I mean, imagine showing up and your ride left two days ago.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Well, Shackleton and his party set fire to the camp, the whole camp. They just set the camp ablaze, uh, hoping to signal the ship. Well, it did. And they turned around, returned to camp a few days later, successfully retrieving them. On his return to England, Shackleton was knighted and was made a commander of the Royal Victorian Order. He should be knighted for that, for getting no left on the on Antarctica. But wh- why, other than being called Nimrod, would you just set sail and leave these people there?
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: It's... Maybe they thought they were dead. It's like, we've I mean, been how... gone for like a day, and you think we're dead?
1: Yeah, we were... I'm like, how...
0: Well, I mean, how many people could they possibly
1: have had where they were like, we, we've completely, we're missing an entire team,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Here we go. Way am- anchor. Nimrod. <laughs> so there are, like I said earlier, there are so many accounts of third man syndrome, um, but this one from Ernest Shackleton is by far the the most famous, and it's considered to be the origin story. Um, now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the novel South, um, which was a, a first-person account by Ernest Shackleton of this expedition to Antarctica, um, he explains what happened that eventually led to the survival of his small group and their ability to rescue the remaining members of their crew. Now, in 1914, Shackleton set off on a journey to become the first team to successfully explore uh, Antarctica. And as his ship, the Endurance, entered the Weddell Sea, which is that area on the north. If you're looking at a if you're looking at a globe with the United States and you go straight down, the Weddell Sea is that that area where there's kind of a hook that comes out of the top of Antarctica that right. may not even be there anymore because it changes so much. Mm-hmm. Um but uh they they got into the Weddell Sea and and the water actually began to freeze around the ship. So, it's not like they're trying to bust through ice. It's so cold. And, you know, if you've ever seen those um, those little scientific magic tricks where they make water, like, freeze instantly or something because of mm-hmm. the way it's disturbed. Okay, something along those lines is what's happening. You know, they have introduced a ship that's cutting through the water. It's causing the, the water to freeze to the hull of the ship. Right. Eventually... They became locked in a giant block of ice, and they could no longer steer the ship. That
0: so they began. Like last uh, last uh, episode we did.
1: Right. Yeah. You know this is this. I mean this dangerous stuff, and and you know these people know it going in. Sure. That this is a possibility. Sure. So now their ship is locked in this block of ice, and they begin to drift. And then the men start to hear a really unfortunate sound the sound of wood splintering
0: yeah unfortunate is an understatement
1: yeah true you know <laughs> horrifying is probably <laughs> yeah. better there you um, go. <laughs> but it's just where the the ice you know has is actually compressing the hull of the ship and it's causing the wood to break once that begins to happen you know the ship's no longer structurally sound it's going to go down eventually. Mm-hmm. And they knew this, so they uh, they had to make uh, a, an executive decision and they began to grab as many supplies as they could and they climbed off the ship down to the ice below. Not land, not an island, mm-hmm. the ice. Yep. They are climbing off of a ship onto a big block of ice that has formed around their
0: ship. But still okay. in the middle of that dang yeah. uh, that that dang sea there. The Weddell, what did you exactly yeah.
1: So they they managed to get they managed to get off, but they they also managed to get several small boats off of the ship as well, which was fortunate for them. That's um wild. because soon after the ship went down and they're stranded on this big floating block of ice, so. It was it was one of these things where you just watched your only shelter from the cold drop into the water, mm-hmm. and you're on a block of ice. Who knows how stable this is? It's like, well, we are going to die, so we should probably do something, you know, because sitting here is going to end us. Right. So what they decided to do... um was load up the small boats and set sail for Elephant Island, which was about 150 miles north of Antarctica. Now, the island was only slightly better than a floating block of ice. There was very little to gather from the, the soil because it was frozen. Um, and And you had to dig beneath the ice and the snow to even get to that point and they had no means to hunt the very few animals that were on the island. So, you know, they didn't have anything they could take down a seal or anything like that. They could they didn't have equipment to to be able to fish, you know, in in that environment. So, I mean, it really looked like we're stuck, we're we're doomed. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, since doing nothing meant certain death, Shackleton decided to recruit five men to journey north to south georgia which is an island about 800 miles away from where they were there they could get help from the whaling station now this journey was really difficult Uh, they nearly capsized and it took 17 days for the small boat to reach south georgia Hmm. now once on land The men were going to need to hike across a mountain range that separated them from the whaling station, which was on the north side of the island. So Shackleton took only two men to make this journey. And he knew that the odds that they would safely reach the whaling station were slim. Sure. Yeah. So this trio, which included Shackleton himself, a man named Frank Frank Worsley, can't say that today, Frank Worsley and Tom Crean uh, set out, and after hiking for a day and a half, uh, the men were uh, able to reach um, the whaling station and get help for their companions that they had left behind. Every member of the Endurance's crew would miraculously survive This event, everyone, they lost nobody. That's amazing. It's yeah, it's incredible. But in telling the story, the men recounted a very unusual experience. Now, in the book, Shackleton wrote, quote, during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, It seemed to me often that we were four, not three. And at the time, he explains that he did not mention this to the other two men. Because at some point, you got to think, I'm losing it. Right. You know, I'm dying. I'm freezing to death and I'm seeing things. But later, Frank uh, Worsley would approach Shackleton and say, boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us.
0: And Tom Crean admitted to feeling the exact same thing. Which is amazing because it was all separate accounts. They weren't sitting around talking about it and, you know, making up this story. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you know what? I did feel that. They just all individually said it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They they all had this sensation. None of them said anything while they were on the hike. This all came out after the fact. So it wasn't like something planned. So was the crew visited by some type of, of entity, a guardian angel? What? I mean, this allowed them to rescue themselves and every member of their crew. Now, most people would pass this off as just a historical oddity. You know, oh, you know, what an, what a what a really neat story. Mm-hmm. Okay. But over the years, more and more people have come out with experiencing this same thing while under extreme stress. Right. Now, one of those people was British explorer Frank Smythe, who almost became the first person to summit Mount Everest in 1933. Almost. Almost. Okay. Along with his climbing party, Smythe made the intense journey toward the summit in very poor conditions, but his party soon turned back after terrible weather and lack of oxygen made the summit just an impossible task. Smythe continued. He was determined to complete the climb and reach the summit. And he just barely missed it by 304 meters or about a thousand feet now I know you that a thousand feet let me tell you something a thousand feet is not that far you can see a thousand feet away okay um when if you're you know if you're if you if you're driving and you see a, a sign that says construction 500 feet ahead or something like that okay then then you realize oh wow 500 feet sounds like a whole hell of a lot more than it really is Um, so, I mean, he was, he was within sight of the summit and had to turn around. I mean, he just, I mean, there was no way he could do it. He was completely alone. His body was giving out. He had no oxygen. And we, we, if you, if you hadn't, if you didn't hear the Patreon that we did about, um, climbing Mount Everest and what's involved in that, that you, you know, um, that it's impossible for regular people to make this climb without oxygen. Your bodies uh. just aren't aren't capable of functioning that way. Unless you're a Sherpa, you're you're not going to be able to do it. Now, again, when Smythe turned around and started his trek back to base camp, he was completely alone. But that's not how he remembers it. Smythe is quoted as saying, all the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. The feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might have otherwise felt. And it, this is from his uh, diary that he wrote after the, the attempt. Now, at one point, Smythe says he was so convinced of, that his imaginary guide was really there that he tried to share some of his Kindle mint cake with him. And when he when he reached out to offer it, he realized there's nobody there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? But, you know, you've had that feeling of, there's somebody right here with me. You know, there's somebody close enough to me. You, you kind of feel their vibration. This was so strong for Smythe, he actually offered him some of his food.
0: Right. And... It- I mean, I think we've all done it. To we've had that feeling. We haven't maybe tried to offer food, but you know, when Dallas passed away, you just get so used to somebody being there or the dog being there that either you call for him to go outside at mm-hmm. the normal time or or something like that. But it it's usually never. To the point of, oh, here, let me hand food to this entity that's not there. Yeah. So for me, the whole hallucinating or or wishing somebody was there doesn't fit this case because Smythe was so adamant in his brain that he had a companion that he was willing to share his food with this being. And he knew he was up there alone.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. he knew there was nobody there with him, you know. But he had that, you know. You're you're in you're in an extreme situation here. You've got to try to make it back to this base camp in terrible conditions by yourself, right? Um. So he, I mean, he knew what what was in front of him, but to you know to feel that to feel like. There's somebody with me. I'm not alone. He says, you know, it took away that loneliness that that you would have felt, you know, being, being out there, possibly being trapped, possibly never getting off of that mountain. You know, the world begins to shrink in around you. Smythe didn't feel that because he had this quote unquote companion with him. Right. Now, he kept walking with his new companion until the base camp was within sight. And Smythe says it was only then that he no longer felt the presence and was once again completely alone. And one of Smythe's contemporaries, British mountaineer Eric Shipton, reported a similar encounter when on Mount Kenya with Bill Tillman in 1930 and later admitted that he had, uh, he, quote, had this experience regularly on arduous mountain journeys.
0: Yeah. It's it's fascinating. And just so y'all kind of know who Frank Smythe is and don't think he's just some wackadoo um, that dreamed this up or whatever. Frank Smythe's mountaineering achievements in the decade before the Second World War became a part of climbing history. Mm -hmm. His intensive alpine climbing, followed by two Himalayan expeditions, became the prelude to Everest. In 1933, on the Great Mountain, climbing alone and without supplementary oxygen, he got to within 820 feet of the top, which was a record height before efforts resumed post-war and Everest was climbed in 1953. And as a superb Himalayan finale in 1937, he returned to the Indian Garhwal to climb difficult peaks up to 24,000 feet in a rapid, lightweight style. So the expeditions were central to his lifetime's work as a writer and photographer, 27 books and albums together with numberless newspapers and magazine articles, intensive lecturing, radio broadcast and film. And it was an output that made him a celebrity, which was a rare feat in the days before television and internet and stuff. You, You couldn't just, you know, shake your booty on TikTok and get famous. You actually had, uh, Uh, Put in the work of touring and and talking and all that to get as famous of a celebrity as he was. He had tens of thousands of readers and his name was familiar to perhaps millions of the general public. It was an incredible career, especially since he died at the early age of 48 after a serious illness in India. So, this guy was uh, Frank Smythe, was well known at that time, a household name, famous. And so when he said something like this, when he talked about experiencing the third man syndrome, it wasn't like just some random dude got up there on the mountain and said, yep, I had somebody with me. Mm. And they're like, yeah, sure you did there. Hillbilly. It's like this guy knew. I mean, he, he was known for this. He had climbed for years and very experienced in it.
1: Yeah. And, and not only that, he was highly respected in the, in the climbing community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when, when, you, when you look at the people that were making these mountain climbing attempts around this time, um, you know, people do it now. And, I mean, they have, you know, modern technology, adequate equipment, everything to make sure that they're a success and people still die doing sure, this. sure, You know, in, in the modern era, people don't make it. Um, well, so, so for, for these guys, they were the extreme of the extreme, you know, that Red Bull would have been their, their sponsor. Oh yeah. Oh had, yeah. had, had, they, have they been around now? Um, well, so and- everybody, everybody listened when he, when he said this.
0: Oh, sure. And you were talking about how they didn't have the equipment in 1937 when he went to India uh, to climb those peaks up to 24,000 feet, said he did it in a rapid, lightweight style. Explain to me how you can slim down your pack (laughs) from what they had. You know, they had nothing. Mm -hmm. And then he's going lightweight style. It's like, oh, what? He had flip flops and a and uh, going up in flip-flops and a thong bikini. I mean, I don't understand how uh, you you can well, I mean, I know how they would say uh, lightweight style is cuz he hardly had anything when he climbed, but to me, what they started out with was hardly anything.
1: Yeah, I mean, the uh, the huge packs, you know, the the extra provisions, the guides, uh, you know, whatever he didn't have all that. Um, you know that was that was the lightweight style mm-hmm. um, which you know makes it even more impressive. All right, so uh, an, another famous situation uh, or a famous occurrence of third man syndrome uh, comes in July of 1953. Now just weeks after the successful Everest climb by Edmund Hillary, Austrian mountaineer Hermann Buell, First climbed the formidable, uh, eight thousand one hundred twenty-six meter Nanga Parbat, which is a mountain that had already claimed thirty-one lives. So uh, you knew That's wild. this. This this was this is a dangerous climb. It doesn't matter how high it is; it's it's a dangerous climb. Um, and Buell took um. 17 hours on his ascent without supplementary oxygen, with quote, every step a battle. He would reach the summit at 7 p.m. only after what they call, what he called an indescribable effort of willpower that at one point involved crawling on all fours. So this was brutal. Now, after bivvying near the summit, he resumed his descent, having inexplicably left his ice axe behind.
0: How do you do that?
1: That's like, you know, if you're a mountain climber, that's like leaving your head. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is the one critical piece of equipment that you absolutely would have to have.
0: And he managed to get away without his. It could save your life in so many situations right. and you, you leave it behind. So exhausted and
1: nearing collapse, Buell moved into a, quote, self-induced hypnosis. It seemed he would become another victim to the mountain, but then he sensed an unseen companion, one which somehow provided calmness, security, and advice. He says, during those hours of extreme tension, I had an extraordinary feeling that I was not alone. I had a partner with me, looking after me, taking care of me, belaying me. He said, I knew it was imagination, but the feeling persisted. Miraculously, Buell reached his fellow climbers at their lower camp after 41 hours in the so-called
0: death zone. That's wild.
1: Yeah. So, for, for all reasonable thought, that th- Buell should have died there. Yeah. I mean, he he had everything against him. You know, one of the most dangerous mountains in the world. He had forgotten his ice axe, and he is all alone without
0: any oxygen. Right. I was going to bring up the oxygen thing because I know Texans who would need supplemental oxygen walking through Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. I don't know how <laughs> how he did that without the oxygen. <laughs> I, when I first moved to Tennessee, Matt, my ears popped driving down Briley Parkway and I forty because I was yeah. not used to that elevation. Yep. So yep. I don't know how this guy did that without oxygen and without a pickaxe. And I know it's look
1: take take all of this other stuff out of the picture. This is incredible that these mm-hmm. these men were able to do this at all. Now let's let's venture off of the mountain and look at another situation of third man syndrome. Uh, this one comes. This one predates Shackleton's event, but it was it was uh, grouped in with the third man syndrome after Shackleton had had written his book and people had started talking about
0: it. I love this one. I have to say this before you get into it this one i I love it I love it
1: and, and I I love this story too and I remember a few weeks ago when you or I were you and I were talking about this and we weren't talking about it in in great detail when you add the detail in it I love it even more yep you know how many times do you you start picking out details of a really great story and you're like eh, it ain't that great anymore no this one is even better yep so exactly. 1895, experienced sailor Joshua Slocum was on track to become the first man to sail around the world completely alone. Now, Slocum stopped in several countries along his voyage, with one of his first stops being in the Azores, which is a small uh, string of islands off the coast of Portugal. Now, here, he was celebrated by the locals and given gifts of cheese and fruit. As his ship drifted away from the islands, he couldn't help himself. He had to try some of this rich, decadent food that they had gifted to him. Slocum began eating the cheese and fruit and being unable to really stop himself, he wound up overeating. And although the food was delicious, he noticed he began to feel strange. Well, yeah. Yeah. Slocum realized in terror that he had gotten food poisoning and was reduced to writhing in pain on the cabin floor. So soon after, the ship began to be tossed by strong winds, which was indicative of an approaching storm.
0: All right, Matt. So let's take a second and let's talk about one of our longtime sponsors, and that's Raycon. Now, even if you're not going on vacation, summer's all about the vacation state of mind, you know, especially for your kids. I mean, they're always oh, in yeah. the, during summer. It's always a vacation to them. But, you know, whether I want to listen to Hardy's new album, The Mockingbird and the Crow on repeat every day, which I do, or I want to listen to the new episode of Theo Vaughn's podcast this past weekend, I can do it with my Raycons, you know sometimes you just need to retreat inside your head for a bit so i love it i can pop in my Raycons and and go and i mean there's so much going on all summer that sometimes you need you know upbeat music to pump you up before you see people or after you see people, you might need that guided meditation to calm you down from meeting these people.
1: Yeah, and and they they are absolutely the best way to listen to whatever you want to listen to. Um, look, I turned Amanda on to them uh, about a year ago. I'm not sure she ever really takes them out. Yeah. Okay. You, I, I'm. I always have to double check because. Uh, you know, I may be hollering her name in the in the house. She's not turning around. She's not. Uh, she's got. She's got them in. She's listening to <laughs> audio book. You know, constant. That's just it's her groove. She gets into it. She's whatever she's doing. She's got them in. Um, that's why I got her the red ones so I can see them from a distance so <laughs> I know I'm gonna have to go up and tap her on the shoulder.
0: That's a good idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wear mine when I'm working out in the yard. You know, when I'm when I'm active uh, because they they won't come out and they're they're water and sweat resistant and they have a 32 hour battery life. So no matter what I am doing, OK, I know that I've got at least eight hours of listening time to listen to whatever I want. Right. And, and, and I'm not going to have to worry about getting that low battery notification or my music just cutting off right in the middle. And the custom gel tips they make them completely comfortable and and it helps them stay right where they're supposed to be and so with Raycons you can't go wrong look you've got a significant other y'all are planning you know whatever for the summer you know we're gonna go cruise the beach we're gonna go to the mountains we're gonna go hiking we're gonna camping whatever it is with Raycon They are half the price of other premium audio brands, so you could get two pairs. Right. You know, one for you, one for your partner, and still come out cheaper than a lot of the other brands. If if we haven't convinced you yet, give them a try, and you'll be hooked. And you can create your own soundtrack for summer with Raycon. Right now, Graveyard Tales listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at BuyRaycon.com slash tails.
0: That's right. That's BuyRaycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash T-A-L-E-S. And you'll save 15% on Raycons. BuyRaycon.com slash tails.
1: Look, this guy is out in the open water by himself, and now he's got food poisoning. That is is bad enough.
0: I was but, gonna say have, have you ever had food poisoning? Oh yeah, you know, it feels like you're on a rocking ship anyway with your stomach. Yeah. can you imagine <laughs> being on a rocking ship with yeah. a rocking ship stomach? Yeah, I mean he he's
1: he probably had it coming out of both ends.
0: you and know eyeballs and <laughs> nose and I mean if he could leak from his ears, he was.
1: Yeah. So here he is. He is miserable. He is, you know, having severe abdominal pain. He can't hardly do anything but lay on the ground. And, and now he realizes, I'm drifting into a storm. Mm-hmm. So he he just, he gathered up all of his strength and started making some preparations uh, on the ship uh, for the storm. Now, he, he did what he could, but he eventually collapsed in pain and fatigue before he could finish everything. He began to drift in and out of consciousness, and when Slocum came to, he realized that he was no longer alone aboard his ship. Now, in his account of the event, Slocum said, quote, To my amazement, I saw a tall man at the helm. He would have been taken for a pirate in any part of the world. Senor, he said, I have come to you to do no harm. The man doffed his cap and offered a comforting smile. The man continued to say, I have come to do no harm. I am one of Columbus's crew. I am the pilot of the Pinta. Come to aid you. Lie quiet in your cabin, and I will guide your ship tonight. So Slocum reported that he continued to kind of drift in and out of consciousness over the next several hours. But when he finally came to He found that the skies were clear, the seas were calm, and his companion was nowhere to be seen. Amazing. Even more strange was the fact that the ship was right on course and had traveled 90 miles through the night. And it's interesting, too, the Pinta, mentioned by this mystery man, had been the fastest of Columbus's three ships on his voyage to the New World. Now Slocum would recover from his illness, and in after three years would complete his circumnavigation of the Earth. And in 1900, he published his the account of his journey called "Sailing Alone Around the World." You see why this is such a great story. Yep. I mean, yep. if if the if if the companion that that sailed Slocum out of this storm while he could do nothing for himself. Was the spirit of one of Christopher Columbus's captains? That mm-hmm. that's
0: that's crazy. I mean, it what? it is it is incredibly cool, and it it makes me wonder. Yeah, it it's it's amazingly cool, uh, but it makes me wonder. Do you, okay? Because one of my thoughts is maybe that th- these are guardian spirits, like your guardian spirit not necessarily hey here's one third man syndrome guardian Mm -hmm. and if you get in trouble it's this specific guardian angel or guardian spirit that comes to every person but what if it's your own specific guardian spirit and this man because of him being a sailor and Mm -hmm. because of what he was doing his guardian spirit was the captain of the pinta yeah i mean how how cool would that be? And, and why why would this guy make that up? Like what what good would it do to say I was I I screwed myself up. I ate you know, some bad food and I shouldn't have eaten cheese, but yeah. you know, I ate cheese and I got sick. I mean, that makes him look like a fool and he would have died. Had it not been for this, so why would you say that just to make it up? And I mean, get, you think during that time frame that it was cool to say stuff like that? I don't oh, think so. No, you know, no,
1: not at all. Because the first thing that everybody would do is go, "Dude, you were really sick. You yep, you yep. were hallucinating. Yep. You know, you hallucinated another person on board your ship."
0: You were and you that just sick. lucked out. You lucked out and yeah. made it through somehow.
1: Well, I mean if that was the case, he really did luck out.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: that means that essentially an un- unmanned ship survived a storm in open water,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and remained on course, not only that, actually covered 90 miles in right. the right direction? Right. How is that even possible?
0: Yeah, it's not possible because the an unmanned ship would get sideways in a wave and go under. That's right. I yeah. mean, it, it wouldn't survive at all. You have to be at the helm at all times, turning it into the waves yeah. so that it doesn't capsize.
1: And, and for... Really based on this particular one, but I think it fits for all of them. I I have my own little theory that we'll get into later. Okay. Now we're going to go. We've gone from the mountains to the water. Let's, Let's go to the air. During his solo trip across the Atlantic Ocean on May 20th and 21st, Charles Lindbergh fought a storm, disorienting fog, ice in the fuselage, and severe fatigue at one point he actually was reported as he as falling asleep with his eyes open and suffering hallucinations now many believe that Charles Lindbergh experienced a you know the unusual uh, phenomenon of third man syndrome and uh, these incidents that um, that he experienced didn't hit the mainstream public until 1953 when the book, The Spirit of St. Louis, was published. Now, the text contains a timeline of events, including notes concerning the idea that maybe Lindbergh wasn't alone in his plane during his transatlantic flight. Here's just a few quotes, uh, and, and this is courtesy of um, Good Ghosts That Help. Okay, Um, And it's about the beings that he began seeing halfway through his historic flight. Those phantoms speak with human voices. They are friendly, vapor-like shapes without substance, able to appear or disappear at will, to pass in and out through the walls of the fuselage. They were discussing problems of my navigation, reassuring me, giving me messages of importance unattainable in ordinary life. It says, These these spirits have no rigid bodies, yet they remain human in outline and form. They're neither intruders nor strangers. It's more like a gathering of friends and family after years of separation, as though I'd known them all before in some past life. Now, and I know this this is really speaking... To to Adam's favorite theory, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that not only would we have guardian angels, but these guardian angels would be specific to us. Yep. And in this case, possibly old old family, um, or or even um, um, like companions in a past life,
0: right. Right, And I mean, one of the reasons I believe that is because of the story I've told on here. And uh, I think I told it when we talked to Chris is that time I was driving to work and fell asleep and my granddad woke me up. My granddad had passed away four or five years prior to that. But I know specifically that he yelled at me, Adam, wake up right before I drove off the edge of that hill, so that—that's what this reminds me of. That he has maybe past relatives or something like that that are coming back to make sure he makes this flight. Right, right. All right. Now this next one, um, we uh, we included just because it's
1: so cool, and and it's modern.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Ron DeFrancisco was a Canadian working on a U.S. immigration work visa in the South Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City on 9 11. He was a manager at Eurobroker's office on the 81st, 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 the 84th like floor. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm from St. Louis. Um, <laughs> As a Canadian, he felt as it was a unique honor for him to have been appointed to this position and to be working in the world trade center. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's regarded by many as the most prestigious building in Manhattan. Now, when the first plane hit the North tower, the people in his office heard the crash, saw the flames and smoke coming out of the building, but they didn't realize at that point that it had been a hijacked plane that was involved. Mm -hmm. Now, as the phone started ringing and people started asking Ron and the other employees what had happened, they surmised that a small plane had lost its way and accidentally hit the building. They could see that the flames from the crash were forcing people in the North Tower to flee and in some cases jump to escape the fire. As news reports started coming in, giving more accurate accounts of what was happening, Ron got a telephone call from his good friend in Canada, telling him to get out of his building. He heeded the warning and made his way over to the elevators. Just then the second plane hit his tower. Ron says the impact of the crash was so violent that the building swayed some seven or eight feet. And he thought for a moment that the building would just keep going and tip over. But instead it started to sway back the other way. So after the building stopped swaying, Ron made his way to the staircase. Um, Ron made his way to the staircase. Unlike in the North Tower, where the plane came in level, in the case of the South Tower, the pilot of the plane came in on an angle evidently to cause maximum damage. In a sense, this was fortuitous for Ron and that the right tip of the wing of the airplane plowed into the tower above the 84th floor, although the body of the plane crashed into the building just below it. Mm. So the 84th floor didn't take a direct impact.
0: Yeah, that's super lucky.
1: Yeah. Now, Ron made his way to the staircase. Smoke was coming up the stairs from the lower floor. Now, he tried to make his way down, but people from lower floors were coming up to escape the fire below. So he turned around and he tried to go up. Now, since the right tip of the wing of the plane hit the tower above his floor, that part of the tower was on fire. There was no way to continue to go upward. And for perhaps the first time, Ron DeFrancisco realized he was no longer in control of the events of his life. A sense of doom descended on him and the rest of the people trapped between the floors. Unable to go up, once again, he turned to go down, facing the billowing smoke coming up the staircase like a smokestack. Now, there was also fire down below, and despite using a piece of drywall to shield himself from the heat, uh, as he went down, his body was being burned. Mm. In fact, um, one of the articles I read said that, um, you know, he was immediately hospitalized when he got out of the building. It was so hot that his contact lenses had melted to his eyes. Ah. That is un, I I just, I can't, I can't even wrap my head around that.
0: I know. I know.
1: So Ron thought this, it was all over. You know, this, this is where it ends. He was overcome with smoke and about to give up. But just then, Ron says he heard a voice and felt someone grab his hand and lead him through the smoke. He cannot really explain exactly who it was, but he drew strength and faith from it to continue downward despite the burns. Then he heard a second voice, the voice of a firefighter. While he could not see in the smoke, the firefighter said to come in the direction of his voice further down the stairs. Ron reached the firefighter and told him he couldn't breathe. The firefighter examined him and told Ron to go down to the bottom where he would be cared for. And that's what he did. Since he was now below the crash site the sprinklers had come on making the descent much easier but when he finally emerged on the ground floor he was blocked from exiting the building by firefighters who said it was too dangerous because of falling debris and the bodies of those who had jumped so instead he was directed into the basement and the uh, exited the building there making him the last survivor out of the second tower. Now this one, you know, we I kind of went back and forth because I I I'm not sure of what happened, but as I went back and read this and I read other accounts that pretty much read the same way. I mean Ron didn't do like, you know, an, an interview tour for something right. like this. You know, I can imagine he he would have probably rather not spoken of it ever again.
0: I can imagine, yeah.
1: Um so there's not just a ton of information from Ron himself, but from what I found, yeah, this this voice and this hand that led him, what it was not necessarily another person because this person was calming. This person uh. was comforting and led him through the smoke. He couldn't see. How could anybody else at the same level he was see that wasn't prepared like a firefighter would be with masks and and lights and everything else? Yeah. So uh, that, to me, kind of takes away the idea that this was another employee that was with him on the stairwell. Also, remember He took a piece of drywall and used it as a fire shield to get down as far as he did. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anybody else with him doing the same thing,
0: right? So he and I was going to say, how did somebody get like back up to him if that's what? Yeah, you know, if they're going to say it was a it was a firefighter or whatever. Yeah, he he ran into firefighters when he got down. There was no way that the firefighters could get up through that that smoke and heat of the fire to get to him, to lead him back through the, the fire and the smoke. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That takes that away. Yeah. So, so
1: now we, we go back to third man syndrome, Mm -hmm. Uh, something, a companion took his hand and spoke to him. And it, you know, cause I mean, at some point you're just, you're out of it. You're, you're, you know you 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 think you're going to die. You know you're not thinking clearly. You know you're in a panic. You're burning. You're in severe pain. And you know, yeah, you just think it it's over. I can't survive this. And you 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 hear this voice and you feel this hand start to lead you and you take comfort in it. You you get strength from it to continue on. So that's exactly what third man syndrome is all about. And so when you go back and look at it, you think this was this was not likely another firefighter. I certainly don't think it was another employee. They this whatever this was got him to a firefighter. It took yeah. him straight to a firefighter. Yeah.
0: That was able to was help so, him. Yeah. It was something that could do it without harm to itself yeah, and be in a calming position where if that had been another human in some fashion, they would have probably been screaming from the, the heat, yep. just like he was. They wouldn't have been able to see, like you said, how if it was a person, a coworker, how would they have known where to go? He didn't. Right. And he knew the building. Right. So. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so I, I you know, this is uh, look, as, as I get it as an American um you know, this this is a tremendous story. You know, and um not only that for a a a Canadian man to have experienced this while working in the United States. You know, it, it it's just I mean, there's just so much emotion behind this. Like I said, after reading it and reading it, I've, I I said, yeah, this is this something happened there. Something it, happened yep. for this man. Something got him out of that building. You know, he he was this close to making it and wasn't mm-hmm. going to make it unless something intervened, and something did.
0: Yep, it, it and a hundred percent to me fits the third man syndrome requirements. Mm-hmm. I guess you would say, yeah um to to be considered a third man syndrome thing. Life was in peril. Thought he was gonna die. Something came and calmed him, Mm -hmm. led him through the experience in into safety.
1: Yeah. Now this last story is a little different and the the YouTube um video that I got this from, they even said this is a little bit different, but it's way too cool not to include I think it still qualifies. So you tell me what you think, Adam. All right. So one day in the mountains of Tibet, missionaries Bob Eckval and Ed Carlson, both graduates of Wheaton College, were riding their horses, fully aware that larger packs of marauders or bandits or whatever might overtake a smaller group. They both carried rifles, and it says they both knew how to use them. Though Ekvall claimed he had never killed a man, he stated that he had shot the horses out from underneath a few. As Carlson and Ekvall rode up a remote pass, they saw in the distance several men on horseback galloping toward them, obviously plotting an assault. Suddenly, these would-be bandits stopped and retreated. Now, later, this is what really blows me away. Later, Ekvall came across one of these men and had a conversation with him. And they asked, why did you ride away like that? You know, you obviously could have taken us. Had the drop on us. And he says, you know, you outnumbered us. And the guy replied, we weren't afraid of you. We weren't afraid of your friend. But who was that shining one with you? And Egval was just baffled. That's so. Yeah, that's amazing. Egval and Carlson weren't aware of their third man, but these bandits that sought to do them harm, they saw something, something mm-hmm. that scared them pretty bad, and they had yep. to turn around. And Egval and Carlson were completely unaware, but it saved their lives.
0: Yep. I'm I'm with you. I think this fits. Yeah. I think had Ekval and his buddy uh, Carlson been maybe in that situation longer, had had longer time in the perilous situation, they might have become aware True. of their third man. But because it happened so quick us dumb humans we had it it takes a big slap in the head for us to realize most paranormal uh anything yeah and, and to get us to realize it uh, we're just not as in tune to it so i think if they'd have, they'd have spent more time in that situation maybe they would have uh come to be aware of their shining friend yeah. there
1: and you know if you if we if we kind of superimpose the events of these other stories that we've discussed tonight on top of this one, um, you know, Adam's point holds true. You know, mo- the majority of these other people were in danger for a much longer period of time. You know, sometimes hours, days. Um, but when the danger resolved, the presence left. You know when you hear um uh uh which one was it when you hear um uh buell's story and you think about smys story offering food the the loneliness going away, this calm this i can do this um all of that you know builds up but as soon as the the danger's over they all say we were we were alone again you know mm-hmm. once once i could see base camp i knew i was alone i was alone i i didn't feel the presence anymore so you know in this case you know Carlson and Eckvault they see the bandits and they immediately realize we're in danger and as soon as they realize they're in danger they're out of danger Right So right. imagine if if these bandits come up, they're coming up quick. Oh crap, we're in trouble. this this shining image appears with them. The bandits turn around and and take off and they're out of danger. the shining image goes away. So I, I think you know that is the situation. They were out of danger. Mm-hmm. No no need for this guardian, if you will. And they they never noticed it because it was over so quick,
0: right? Right. They'd have spent hours in it, maybe. Yeah, they they might have been. From, yeah,
1: they might have been aware of it, right? So uh, you know, you take these stories for what you will, but it it does seem like these people experienced something, and that something saved their lives. What was it though? You know, what was it? Right. So. Let's talk about some of the the ideas that, that we've kind of pitched around as far as what could cause this uh, this situation.
0: Right. Now, John Geiger actually wrote a book on the third man factor, the third man syndrome. And I've got an excerpt from his book here that I want to read, and then we can discuss some theories. But he says, Drawn from all these examples are vital clues, the five basic rules that govern the third man's appearance and invest the experience with meaning. These rules are the pathology of boredom, the principle of multiple triggers, the widow effect, the muse factor, and the power of the savior. Together they help to explain the onset of third man factor, but they are casual in nature. They do not explain his origins or where the power comes from over the years various theories have been proposed to explain the third man a running and running concurrently with these interspersed among the chapters of the book are accounts of the search for an explanation these attempts at understanding are themselves a record of man's changing conception of himself they begin with the guardian angel followed by the sensed presence and the shadow person as clerics and then psychologist and finally neurologist theorized about the phenomena. They the trend has been a gradual reduction from the outside in, from God to the mind to the brain. Whether any of these explanations is finally enough to account for the third man mystery, you will have to wait and see. So biologist he says has a term for the boundaries that the physical world imposes on human beings, and it's called limit physiology. At some definable point, as conditions change, humans can no longer succeed. And at a more critical point, they can no longer survive. It is a formula based on a series of scientific measurements. For example, an increase of only nine degrees Fahrenheit to core body temperature causes fatal heat stroke or at minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit, bare skin freezes in a minute. Quote, To state it plainly, rarely does one person survive under extreme conditions when another dies simply because the survivor has greater will to live. Wrote Claude P. Antodosi, maybe, yeah. <laughs> in the study of the biology of human survival. It says, and yet in these stories, in situations where success appears to be impossible or death imminent, something happens. There, amid the anxiety, fear, blood, sadness, exhaustion, torment, isolation, and fatigue, is an outstretched hand, another existence offering a transfusion of energy, encouragement, and instinctual wisdom from a seemingly external source. A presence appears, a third man who, in the words of legendary Italian climber Reinhold Messner, quote, leads you out of the impossible. So no one really knows, and almost no scientific explanation has been put forward as to what this is. Some scientists might explain this phenomenon away as the two halves of your brain conversing, Mm -hmm. proving the two brain theory, the idea that the two hemispheres of your brain are separate and may talk to one another. Others may put it down to a guardian angel or a guiding spirit. And that's where I land, Matt. Yeah. I, and I'll, because I've already kind of touched on it, I'll knock mine out and then get your thoughts. But I I feel like most, if not all humans are watched over by what has been called guardian angels. But I I, I feel like it's, our ancestors, or some, some presence in our history that has a significance to us, but we don't know this person, they know us. And I feel like that, like in my case with my granddad, you know, that, that woke me up from <laughs> maybe driving off the dang mountain or whatever. Um I feel like these people are maybe in the after the afterlife the other world but they are allowed to come back and commune when th- their loved one is in danger or needs their help and I feel like my opinion is that's what this is this is someone someone gets in peril and the person who cares about them that's on the other side says, I'm going to help them through. They're not done in this life. They've got more to do, and I'm going to help them get through. It's not their time. And to me, that's what I feel like it is. And I could be way off like I am with most things, but that that's kind of where I land on it.
1: I, I don't think you're way off. I don't, in fact, I, I like the guardian angel theory. I don't think I, I land wholly there. Um, and that's what I was hinting at earlier. Uh, So with, with Slocum's case, with being, being on board that ship and being too sick to man it through a storm, you know, he has, uh, another individual who is obviously a tremendously skilled sailor mm-hmm. to not only get the ship through the storm, but to get it on course and further down the line. Um, I, I think about this idea of you, you can, you manifest yourself in this situation Slocum, I mean, to understand, Slocum didn't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to sail around the world, okay? Mm. Um, he was already a highly skilled sailor. You you would not attempt something like this if you weren't. So right. he was well-suited to uh, get through this storm and and stay on course. Mm. But he was far too sick to be able to do it. So, in his distress, did his mind somehow manifest either like a tulpa that was there to help him? Yeah. Or did he have an out-of-body experience where his body was sick and couldn't go, but his spirit could and knew what to do and took over?
0: Um, Yeah, I I can see I mean,
1: who knows? But that that when that's why I said with his story in particular, that's kind of what came to mind is what if so what if something like that happened? If you look at the mountain expeditions, you know, these these guys are alone and they know what to do. They also know how much danger they're in. And, you know, they they manifest this person that essentially says, "You can do this. You know how to do this. You've practiced for this. You know it's like it's like the moment. This is what you trained for. Yeah. And and it and it bolstered them enough that they were able to keep going. And, and that's the other thing when when we look at you know at some point the human body is just like." I, you know I, I can't do this you know I, I can't swim through lava you know I, I can't i I can't I can't be exposed to a temperature that would freeze me
0: right you know right
1: so it, it was all a matter of in all these cases they just had to keep going they couldn't stop and that presence convinced them do not stop. You can do this. You just have to keep going forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And look, if you're Ernest Shackleton, you know, if uh, if you're Buell, if you're Smythe, you know, if you're Slocum, you know what you have to do. You know that moving forward is the only way, even if your physical body won't allow you to do it. Your spirit pushes you forward, and you just need that that companionship that reminds you you can do it. And what better companion than yourself if you yourself are the expert here?
0: Yeah, you know i I can see that. I mean, my my one argument against it, but I don't know that. It even holds up, but it's like, if, if it was you kind of, uh, astral projecting or whatever, wouldn't, don't you think there would be more of a recognition on who that entity was? And then like if you've already reached what you feel is your quote limit physiology Mm -hmm. that we discussed. I don't know, you know, and because to me that would seem in in these situations, some of these situations, it seems like the person has hit a point of uh, deep down in their core, they're resigned to die. Yes. So how would they then find that will to project themselves, and lead themselves out. That, that that's my only yeah. argument to it. And then with um, what's his name? That uh, the airplane Lindbergh. Uh, Lindbergh. That's it. Uh, he had multiple. Apparently, mm-hmm. they said it was like friends. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no way your theory is valid. That's just my questions right. to what it if it is. What then? You know, um, I I don't know. I mean, I there's no way you or I could we could sit here and discuss it for another three hours and still not be able to come up with an explanation for it because way smarter minds than us have tried. Yeah,
1: yeah. In fact, when we were doing this research, I had told Adam, I said, "Let's look at psychological texts. You know, are there are there case studies?" On people mm-hmm. that have experienced this, we we didn't we didn't have any success. But, I tried, <laughs> but it sure sounded like something that would would have a a psychological mm-hmm. background as far as maybe some research or study um, on cases of this because it 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 could be a psychological phenomenon where your you know and, your your brain is. Talking to itself, essentially.
0: Um, And I think they're out there. I just don't think they're available for what we can see because there was mention of, quote, being it third man being used in studies. Now, I couldn't find how they did it or anything like how they manifested the third man Mm -hmm. if they did but I did see where it said, the third man has been used in psychological studies, mm-hmm. da 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 da, da. Yeah. But I think those papers are maybe hidden away in a, a research office or something where they're not published in a way that we can get. Right.
1: To. Yeah. And th- that's a good possibility. Um, but it's it, it It's fascinating to talk about this So, uh, you know when you when you consider all those cases of human survival in in cases where it it seemed not not just improbable impossible for somebody to survive and and accomplish what they did um it it, it it's just it, it's I don't even know. It's, it's incredibly cool. But one thing I, I, I will say is that, um, you know, I, I've experienced situations to where I kind of felt like I wasn't alone, that mm. somebody was kind of with me, but I was never in a situation to where um, I, I was, I felt like my life was in significant danger, you know? Right. And I think that, is probably the the impetus that brings this about mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to die you know there's there's no there's no escape from this uh i've never been in that situation ever and and I hope that I'm never in that situation um yeah. but I have been in other situations to where i i i for for all Practical purposes, I should have been panicked and I wasn't, you know, and you, you kind of feel like the, to me, it's like that, that whole thing of, well, that's what I should have done. The, the part of your personality that says, well, this is what we should have done, comes out and tells you, this is what you need to do. Right. And you get through it. You know, you're, you're not in necessarily any danger. Um, but maybe it's just, you know, a lot of stress or mental anguish or frustration, whatever it is, it it it's not gonna kill you, but something says, hey, you know, ease up. You know how to do this. You know what to do. This is what you need to this is what you need to do. And and you do it. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wow, you know, I didn't I didn't realize I could I could pull something like that off. And you surprise yourself, but if we if we take that to an extreme level then maybe that is something similar to what's happening in third man syndrome we don't know um but like i said it it is it's incredible to to look into this and read these stories um especially from these people that were so well respected they were champions in their fields um and for them to have gone through this and to nearly die, but to be rescued by some unknown presence—I mean, it's 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 great. It's great. If if yeah. if you've never gone and done further research on any of our shows, this is a good one to do it.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree.
1: So, have have any of you guys ever experienced anything like this? Uh, have you ever been in, in, in real danger and felt that some unseen presence helped you out of it? We would love to hear it. Uh, the best place to do that is in our Facebook group. Um, it's private. It's full of great people. No one wants to make fun of anyone or call somebody a loony. We're just trying to to hear some great stories and personal experiences. So, you know, hop in there. And, and let us know. Um, you can also see us on uh, Twitter and on Instagram. Just search Graveyard Tales. Uh, don't forget to go and rate and review us on iTunes. It helps bring us up the charts. It makes it easier for people to find the graveyard. Check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. And there you can find uh, links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. You can listen to the show, and you can become come up and you can become a patron. We appreciate everyone that has supported the show financially. It really keeps us going and oh, and yeah. we've got a great catalog of of bonus episodes that's our way of saying thank you and and giving you a little bang for your buck.
0: So, recording another one tonight. That's right.
1: That's right. So, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard.
0: See you soon.